Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in South Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Niharika Yadav, the host of this episode, and I'm joined by Professor Doc Rotem Eva, lecturer of history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And we're in conversation about her book, Delhi Reborn, Partition and Nation Building in India's Capital, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Rotem, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So just to get started uh, on our conversation, I want to begin by asking you what brought you to Delhi as a site for you to study the kind of twinned processes of partition, violence, and decolonization, and just how and when you first got interested in the city. Yeah, uh, thanks for this question. Uh, I think in retrospect, uh, I had both a theoretical and um, personal uh, drives uh, in exploring this uh, question. Uh, I will start with the theoretical uh, ones. When I first uh, encountered the very, very dramatic uh, story of Delhi during partition, uh, I was really uh, captivated by it. And I was was back then a master's student in anthropology at the New School for Social Research. It was before I joined uh, a PhD in, uh, in history. Uh, I took an uh, urban studies uh, class, I read about uh, Delhi, and I was really struck by uh, the drama uh, of the story, as you are well aware, and as the book uh, details, uh, what happened was that uh, during partition, uh, the city absorbed uh, about half a million uh, refugees, Hindu and Sikh refugees from West Pakistan. Uh, these came to the city quite uh, traumatized and they were desperate for food, for shelter, for employment, and really uh, overburdened uh, the city. Uh, soon uh, pogroms followed, pogrom- pogroms that uh, targeted the Muslim, the Muslim population uh, of the city, and about uh, 350,000 Muslims were driven, expe- ex- um, expelled, or uh, escaped from the city. So we have a story of a serious dramatic uh, demographic uh, shift, um, which intrigued my interest. And back then I was based in an anthropology program that tried to bring together history and anthropology. And we engaged in the theoretical challenges and questions concerning how to reconcile history and anthropology, history and structure, event and structure. Uh, I came across Vina Das's influential volume, uh, Critical Events, uh, back then. And I read uh, Emma Tarlow's uh, excellent book on the emergency. And both these books uh, dealt with the question of critical events and structure and the relationship uh, between them. And this is how I started uh, to think about uh, Delhi. Uh, I think this is also when I read uh, Tan and Kudesia's uh, volume on the aftermath of partition, and they have a very, like, a very interesting chapter on partition cities. So I started to formulate this question about what it means that Delhi was a partition city, how this kind of eventful history was uh, structured by the late colonial history, by pre-existing structures, and then how it reshaped um, and restructured the city, both demographically, but also spatially, 
politically, ideologically, and uh, culturally. So these questions really uh, intrigued me then, and I pursued them uh, during my PhD studies. Um, I must say that in hindsight, I think, as I said, uh, there was also personal interest uh, in this question because when you look at the history of Delhi during partition, uh, it really resembles what cities in, in Israel-Palestine underwent in 1948. There are so many parallels between the history of Jerusalem and Haifa. And of course, this is the context uh, where I'm located and uh, uh, and which I have uh, personal uh, issues uh, that I grapple with. So both Delhi and Palestinian Israeli cities demonstrate this larger uh, story of the rise of the nation state, ethnic cleansing, refugees, uh, the crisis of uh, minorities. So again, there was also a personal uh, drive uh, to think uh, through these questions. Uh, I must say that uh, at that initial stage, I thought more about Delhi as a partition city. I wasn't um, aware how important its uh, identity as a Muslim city, as a Muslim city par excellence, as an, as a national capital really inflected and shaped its history and the particular ways in which uh, partition was like played out uh, in the city. Uh, the importance of its Muslimness and of its uh, status as the capital city is something that I came to realize only later as I was conducting uh, the research, and it uh, has a prominent uh, place in the book. I can uh, uh, discuss it later if you want. Yeah, thanks, Sorjam. I do want to get back to this question of partition cities because it's fascinating. But since you brought up this personal connection also with Haifa and other contexts, I wanted to ask you about uh, the you know this overlap between nation and territory that you trace through the principle of self determination in the book, and you talk about how this increasingly kind of territorial nation of uh, notion of nationhood in the principle of self-determination is linked to the process of what you call Muslim minoritization, which then culminates into the partition. And even though this dynamic was in a sense inevitable, you show that the precise outcomes of these developments were not prefixed. So chapter one shows that the idea of Pakistan was territorially ambiguous and vague right up to the late 40s. Uh, so can you expand on this tension, which I think you rightly identify between the uh, through which I think the politics of self-determination operates, that it's open ended, yet some of its consequences are inevitable. And I would love for you to talk about how you came to frame the problem in these terms, but also what potentials you see uh, for this kind of critique for scholarship on decolonization that extends beyond uh, South Asia as well. Yes, thank you for this question. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, the tension between inevitability and contingency is a central tension I walk through uh, in this book. Uh, and it is a reiteration of the larger question about structure and event that I uh, just mentioned. To what extent was partition inevitable or was it an accident? As you are well aware, it is in a way one of the most critical questions that have defined South Asian historiography for many years. And to be honest, I don't think one can have a definite answer, right, to such a heavy-loaded question of uh, inevitability. And I don't claim to find a, a solution or have a definite, definite answer. But what I did find is a coupling, a very intriguing coupling of inevitability and contingency, a sort of a paradox that I explore uh, through this book. And to put it briefly, and I will later elaborate, it seems to me that the dynamics of Muslim minoritization, partition, and ethnic cleansing were structurally determined by larger historical forces evident in the 20th century more globally. Okay? However, people on the ground experienced them as contingent and unexpected, unexpected 
even baffling. Yeah? So we need to draw a distinction between the larger historical dynamic at play and how it was perceived and experienced on the ground. Now, it is clear that the, in Delhi and in India more broadly, people could not comprehend what was going to unfold, even as it was unfolding literally in front of their eyes. The colonial and the uh, political leadership continue to think in terms of minority protection until the last minute and even after, even as large-scale migrations were taking place. And in Delhi, as I show in in this uh, chapter, the most ardent Muslim leaguers, supporters of Pakistan, never envisioned that Delhi would remain outside Pakistan, and they never envisioned that they would need to uh, migrate. Okay, so on the one hand, you have this sense of contingency and suddenness and, and very dramatic and unexpected development in f- unfolding um, from the perspective of uh, historical actors who may try to reconstruct uh, in the chapter. Um, now, I came to this understanding by building on the, exist- on the existing uh, historiography of India's partition while focusing my gaze specifically on Delhi and linking the South Asian case to the transnational and global context of partitions, population transfer, and ethnic cleansing in the 20th century. So this analysis of structure and contingency, it's something that is both inevitable and uh, contingent. So um, I think I should elaborate a little bit on this transnational context that is so important. Um, India's partition was clearly part of a larger transition from multi-religious and multi-ethnic empires to nation states and its attendant crisis of minorities. This is what uh, historian Eric White uh, called the transition from the Vienna system to the Paris system. This dynamic started in Europe and the Middle East during the 19th century with the growing pressures on the Ottoman Empire and the formation of Greece and Serbia. And then it reached its peak after the First World War with the final dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires and the formation of a host of new uh, nation states. This process involved the transformation of religious communities into competing national groups along with a new kind of politics of populations and the entrenchment of the categories of majority and minority in the political imagination. These categories became central. And then the ideal of an overlap between nation and territory meant a drive for religious or ethnic homogenization that turned certain religious groups into problematic minorities that required a solution. And uh, if I quote uh, Hannah Arendt, who so perceptively analyzed this uh, dynamic, she observed that minorities within nation states must sooner or later be assimilated or liquidated. So what followed in Europe was the crisis of the minorities, and it entailed failed attempts at protection of minorities, persecution, discrimination, up to forced removal, statelessness, and even genocides. Uh, which, and this history in Europe culminated in the Second World War. Then in the British Empire, you have similar processes unfolding with the partition of India and Palestine taking Uh, place roughly at the same time um, within a span of a a few months. And in both cases, partition involved a violence that can be characterized as uh, ethnic cleansing in the sense that um, majorities uh, tried to, um, groups tried to cleanse the territories of unwanted uh, groups. So developments in India fell squarely within this pattern, right, featuring uh, from the second nineteenth century, from the second part of the nineteenth century, you have a new population politics, colonial censuses, the emergence of minority and majority, and then finally the ostensible shift of Muslim League from bargaining over communal representation, which was its familiar politics, to a new language of 
self-determination that that's the then snowballed into partition and ethnic cleansing. Now, to return to this tension between contingency and structure, it's, it's true that Gina may not have wanted it, right, as uh, Ayesha Jalal famously argued. And clearly, Pakistan was imagined in diverse and often autonomist ways as a part of federations or confederations and different arrangements of uh, multi-layered sovereignty. But at the same time, it seemed that Gina and others just did not have control over a dynamic that went out of hand and which echoed events in other parts of the globe. So uh, to recap this uh, somewhat uh, lengthy analysis, um, partition was on the one hand a history of unintended consequences in the sense that the consequences transcended the original intentions of its makers. But at the same time, we can discern a pattern that is larger than the agency of the individual. And I think that the synchronous or transnational perspective allows us to see just that. It allows us to move beyond the specific national and regional controversies about who's to blame, etc., and see the wider uh, global picture. Uh, in this respect, I must add, I relied on uh, the excellent uh, recent uh, transnational historiography that came out uh, from Faisal Devji's um, thought-provoking book, uh, Muslim Zion, to more uh, recent studies, especially transnational history of partition that uh, um, Arik Dubnov and Laura Robson edited, uh, discussing Ireland, uh, Palestine, and uh, and India. Yeah, thanks, Rotim. I actually want to return from this transnational picture that you've sketched so beautifully to the more contingent uh, aspects of the story. And I want to go back to this question of partition cities uh, to talk about, you know, the picture of Delhi in the interwar that emerges in chapter one of your book, where you show how Delhi becomes the site for an increasingly territorial notion of Pakistan to take hold in the Muslim League's politics. And I really like how this chapter places this territorialization of the demand in relation to local political contexts uh, taking place in Delhi between the Muslim League, the Congress, the Hindu right, the Congress socialists, and uh, that came to define kind of the everyday life of the, the city, which you call an exemplary political space, Delhi as an exemplary political space. So you know, it is a kind of partition city, but there's something contingent and something exemplary or unique uh, in the story. And I was wondering if I could uh, invite you to reflect on what you mean by Delhi as the as an exemplary political space, but also more broadly uh, on how, uh, you know, there's a lot of recent work on elite and popular imaginaries of Pakistan in the interwar period. And I want to maybe think about how your narrative makes uh, archival and methodological departures from that work or in relation to that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, thank you. So, um, well, what I tried to do in this book, in this ch- chapter, was to uncover the political and territorial imagination of Delhi Wallas, re- Delhi's residents, to reconstruct the ways in which they imagine the future, the meaning of independence, the meaning of um, Pakistan during the 1940s, during the Second World War. So one goal was indeed to capture uh, the liminality of that moment, that it was a time between different orders, between empire and between nation state, and how it allowed for a particularly flexible and malleable political and territorial uh, imagination. So the chapter reconstructs how people at the time of crisis and transition how they saw the future as so open-ended uh, and how it imag- they imagine it in ways that seemed very strange to us today as the- we are located in the very entrenched, solid situation of uh, the nation state. So in, in a sense, uh, this chapter was an exercise of historical uh, uh, imagination. Now, what comes up very clearly uh, in the chapter is how politicized the urban landscape became during the Second World War. And it is related to the fact that Delhi was the capital city, the hub of national politics associated with the nation, and where, frankly, all the action took place, all the Crips mission, 
uh, all the negotiations, uh, the legislative assembly, um, everything takes place in Delhi and it really inflects uh, its urban uh, politics. So you see the imbrication of national politics with urban politics uh, takes place during this uh, period. Um, so what we see uh, in that chapter is the crisis of the colonial state, right? And the crisis of the colonial state, what uh, historian Indival Kamtekar calls the shiver of 1942, I trace it in uh, Delhi. Uh, and I show how it emerges from the pressures of the Second World War and how it induced a utopian and millenarian sense of time, right? The feeling that the colonial order is crumbling, is collapsing, that something new and exciting is coming. The future seemed really open-ended. And this millenarian historicity combined with the dislocations of the war the rising population, congestion, uh, the appearance of so many British and American soldiers on the street, inflation, um, and created a very intense and volatile mass politics. So we have high politics, on the other hand, taking place in New Delhi, but then very uh, aggressive mass politics. And I foreground um, both the intensity of the Quit India disturbances in the city, which were very harsh considering the fact that this was the center of power. Uh, the colonial state really lost control over the situation for a couple of days. Uh, and the Pakistan movement. And I try to show how both of them were uh, shaped and reflected this um, millenarian historicity and sense of time of the transition from empire nation state. Uh, now, with regard to the Pakistan movement, I think that in an important sense, I don't depart from the existing literature, but actually pursue and strengthen the ambiguity argument, right? The argument that uh, existing scholarship advanced with regard to the imagination of uh, Pakistan. Um, and I find that Pakistan was indeed uh, imagined and thought in very vague terms. Uh, but I believe that this is uh, the first book to explore this ambiguity specifically in Delhi. So if I compare the book to most accounts of partition in Delhi, they usually take their point of departure in the crisis of 1947. But what I, what I try to do in this uh, chapter was to give historical depth to the crisis and to the ethnic cleansing and look at how the politics of self-determination developed and played out in the city from the late 1930s onward, especially uh, under the pressures of the Second World War. Uh, so what I do, I uncover the transformation of the Delhi Muslim League from a really insignificant uh, small local branch to a major political force in the city that demonstrated its uh, presence, held mass gathering, processions, and, and so on, and uh, rallied the masses around the demand uh, for, of, for Pakistan, self-determination and uh, Pakistan. And I tried to decipher how these Muslim leaguers actually understood Pakistan. And what I found really strengthening the ambiguity argument that Pakistan was open-ended, territorially ambiguous, that everyone interpreted in their own ways, and that the moral and utopian significance overrode its territorial and concrete meanings and implications for uh, citizenship regimes. So what I did in order to reconstruct um, this political imagination, I used a mixture of sources. Um, there were maps of future Pakistan that uh, circulated in the 1940s that I examined, uh, intelligence reports from the Criminal Investigation Department about the local Muslim League. Uh, I looked at uh, Hindi and Urdu pamphlets that I found in censorship uh, files and then retrospective memoirs and uh, interviews, uh, oral history interviews, the kind that are located in, uh, in Tin Muti. Um, 
And then what I realized, especially as, as you look at these ma- maps, it's quite uh, striking that in most of the maps of this period, Delhi is colored as part of Pakistan. It was imagined as part of Pakistan in one way or another, either as a maximalist uh, Pakistan that included uh, the whole of Punjab, Delhi, and Western UP, or as an autonomy, autonomous Muslim province within Hindustan that related uh, to Pakistan, or as a shared capital of Hindustan and Pakistan. So today, these maps seem so far-fetched, right? Because Delhi is, is, is far from the border, and it's hard to imagine uh, how they thought that Delhi would be part of Pakistan. But clearly, we understand that they could not really fathom the implications of Pakistan and of partition because people were grounded in the framework of empire and of a unified sub continent, right? So their imaginations of the future were constrained by the present condition, right? And as a historian, this this, uh, really fascinated me, right? The challenge of trying to reconstruct how people thought about the future, the mental makeup, and how how different it is from what eventually uh, transpired. So clearly, Muslim leaguers were pushing for self-determination and for a structural change whose enormity they just could not comprehend because they were grounded firmly in the world of empire. And the idea that partition would mean such horrendous violence, dislocation, migration from Delhi, strict regimes of citizenship, regulation of the movement across the borders was beyond uh, the the conceivable. So yeah, Pakistan was highly um, vague. And then if we want to understand why Muslims were sure that um, Delhi would be part of Pakistan, we need to understand this federative um, horizon of expectations within the where it's located, but also the importance of Delhi as a Muslim city. The idea, and you see it again and again in the sources, that Delhi Wallars or Delhi's Muslim are inseparable from the city. This city was the seat of Muslim empires, of the Mughal Empire. Um, it has, It is a Muslim landscape, and it's just unimaginable that it will not be part of uh, Pakistan. And one of the recurrent uh, phrases I noticed was that... Uh, um, Delhi wallets could not be separated from Delhi as one could not separate nails from the flesh, right? So, so here we can see how um, the Muslim Islamic past of the city really bore heavily on the political imagination and the political practice and choices of uh, the residents. What I trace in this chapter and in the in the following chapter is how. As partition neared, the territorial implications came to the surface very suddenly. And the concretization of the meaning of the nation state and of partition operated through the violence. So territorialization was bound up with violence, and it was a specific kind of violence, the violence that take the form of ethnic cleansing, of purifying the urban territory from the minority, in this case, uh, the Muslim minority. Yeah, thanks, Rolim. I actually was, I had the good op- fortune or opportunity to assign uh, that chapter to a class that I taught on South Asian history last fall. And no, it works so beautifully in capturing this sense of, you know, the this period as both very intensification of political conflicts, but this kind of open-endedness and looking towards the future and and especially the maps, which were stunning and my students loved them. So, uh, but I want to go back to like uh, uh, the local story, how it's materialized through space in your narrative in the space of the neighborhood. Uh, and you offer, you know, in chapter three, a very stunning reading of power materialized through space. We see uh, just how conflicts at the very highest level between 
you know, Patel and Nehru are then mobilized at the street level by a range of political actors and government functionaries to make very to make competing claims on the city. And so in a sense, you show how kind of state, bureaucracy, society flow into each other. And with that, you offer us, I think, a framework for reimagining this uh, this kind of old dichotomy in partition literature about the divide between high politics and uh, you know, popular politics. And the phrase you use is the micro-political affairs of Delhi's localities. Uh, so can you tell our listeners what you mean by this phrase? Also, what possibilities this kind of critique at the neighborhood level affords for like future work on political life in post-colonial India? Yes, certainly. Uh, thank you. With your permission, I will just uh, describe a little bit of the argument of uh, this chapter and then uh, um, explain the methodology. Um, what I do in this chapter is to analyze the instability that continued to characterize Muslim existence in the city after 1947 and which found expression specially in the ghettoization of Muslims in specific localities, Muslim majority localities that were called Muslim zones, and then the gradual encroachment on these Muslim zones by a very complicated uh, dynamic that involved violent attacks, confiscation by the custodian of evacuee property, informal economy, corruption, and power politics within the localities where um, Mohalla bosses um, played a significant role. Uh, most importantly, I found that the precariousness of Muslim zones was determined by and reflected the ideological certainties of this period, uh, the fundamental disagreement between factions uh, of the state and society over Muslim belonging and over the, the very um, basic uh, foundation of uh, a secular state. This conflict emerged from the fundamental contradiction, which is the, I think, overarching theme of the book, between a secular democracy on the one hand and the fact that this secular democracy emerged based on a religious-based partition on the, on the other. So while India committed itself to a territorial inclusive citizenship, yeah, what is called U-Soli, the partition divided territory and people according to religion. And Delhi's Muslim really bore the brunt of this contradiction because what we see in this period is how their religious identity came to include their long-term residence in the city. Many doubted their loyalty, their belonging, and this really determined uh, their disposition. Now, the conflict between a secular and a more religious and exclusive vision of citizenship played out first and foremost in the national cabinet between Nehru and Patel. And because Delhi was a central charge dear to both, they constantly intervened in, Delhi's, in Delhi's governance, and they constantly clashed over Delhi's affairs. So what, what we see uh, is this um, conflict played out at a, a very upper level, but then the bureaucracy, police, custodian department, and the host of non-state organizations, political parties, social activists, were also part of this uh, picture because they were aware of this division, they were aware of this conflict, and they tried to play the prime minister and the home minister one against the other. So certainly what we see is a highly politicized and divided political and social landscape. And I think it is such moment of crisis, like partition, that really expose <clears throat> excuse me, the blurred boundaries between state and society that belie the impression uh, that the state is, you know, this coherent unit, uh, unified agent that is external to society and acting upon society. What we see is a deep, that the state was deeply enmeshed in the social divisions and uh, power struggles of uh, this period. And of course, other uh, sociologists and anthropologists, Dr. 
talked about it from Timothy Mitchell and in the South Asian context, uh, William Gold uh, advanced this uh, argument. Now, this uncertainty, this um, ideological uncertainty affected the Muslim zones and resulted in a highly ambivalent and zigzagging policy about the protection of the Muslim zones. And this explains why... um, there was a constant encroachment on these zones, although they were supposed to be outside the jurisdiction of the custodian uh, of evacuee property. So what I found is that there were numerous um, Muslim zones in the initial list of 1948, but then by 1952, many of them actually disappeared from uh, the list. Now, I think that this picture enables us to transcend the dichotomy between high politics and subaltern politics because it is a very complex picture with various levels of political mobilizations and struggles that were actually interconnected. And what allows us to see the interconnectedness connectedness between uh, the upper cabinet and the bureaucracy and the custodian of uh, evacuee property and the political leaders, etc., etc., is the fact that we fix our gaze on specific localities, on specific neighborhoods, and then we can see specific um, controversies and how each of these actors at different levels actually intervened uh, in these uh, controversies, okay. So uh, we have uh, in there is one micro uh, political case of one uh, locality, the Patak Habashan uh, locality, uh, where I see that it was Nehru intervened and Patel intervened and Rajendra Prasad and the rehabilitation minister uh, down the ladder of custodian bureaucrats, uh, Shanti Dal organizations and uh, locality bosses. All of them were somehow um, connected to a very saturated political scene. So I think that once we look uh, at these uh, neighborhoods and also once we look at different levels of archival materials, we can trace these kind of connections. So what I, what I did was to piece together the story of specific neighborhoods from different files from different archival orders, both the national archive, the home ministry files, the chief commissioner files, the police, the criminal investigation files, and then the Shantidal archives that I found in Mridula Sarabhai's uh, papers. Um, so, yeah, I think these, um, these kind of uh, different levels of archive allow us to see the different kind of political uh, mobilization in each of the controversies. Yeah, thanks, Rotom. And, you know, the neighborhood is one axis through which you map these dynamics and also... F- you know, formation of new political identities around parti- through in reference to the partition, but also the the public sphere, uh, which you map in uh, your chapter on the Urdu press in the 1950s. And I was so happy to see you discuss Yashpa's uh, Juta Saj, which I don't think historians uh, working on the partition have engaged with enough. I also, you know, read it myself in the height of the pandemic in summer 2020. And I basically became obsessed with Tara Puri for, for a whole summer. And I don't know if you had that reaction, but more seriously, you bring up the novel in the context of your discussion of the Urdu press in the 50s. Uh, and can you so can you tell our listeners why you turn your attention to the Urdu press in particular and what you found significant in the story of the fractures that you trace within the emergent Urdu public sphere, uh, you know, such as between the Dilli Wala and the refugee? Yes. So first of all, I uh, I have to uh, comment uh, on Yashpal. I totally share your enthusiasm with this novel. I think it is really uh, remarkable. Uh, I focus naturally on the second volume. This is the ve- the volume that takes place uh, mostly in Delhi uh, after a partition, and I was really amazed to see how realistic it was, uh, how thickly. 
described it was it described the mayhem of this period in great detail and attention to everyday life uh, I really treat it as a factually correct nuanced and very sophisticated social history of this period and frankly it really anticipated so much of the details that I later found in the archives that I was I was really uh, struck and he really you know he, he went beyond just the violence to detail every everyday life in the aftermath of the violence. And in this sense, it transcends um, the more classical uh, partition literature that we usually uh, witness. He looks at refugee rehabilitation, problems of corruption, housing, ideological uncertainties, everything that I uh, tried to include in this book and beyond, he actually already described it in 1958. So it is a masterpiece. And as a homage to this uh, great chronicler, I decided to open three of the book chapters with the scenes from the book that encapsulated the essence of the whole chapter. And indeed, one of uh, this chapter is a chapter about the Urdu press. Now, Urdu is extremely prominent in the world of the novel. And in this sense, also, the, the, it was a very realistic choice on the part of Yashpal. You know, we tend to associate independence and partition with the marginalization of Urdu, right? It's strict identification with the minority and uh, as a minority language. Uh, but this process really took time to congeal. And during the 1950s up to the 1960s, Urdu was very prominent on the streets of Delhi and Punjabi cities because it was the language of both the Muslims who remained in the city, but also of the refugees who came from Punjab, from West Pakistan, who read and wrote in Urdu. So in this sense, um, it's, it's very interesting because the... The, the, this chapter, on the one hand, shows the, how the demographic uh, transformation of the city was, tr was really reflected in the press world because so many Muslim editors, journalists, and newspapers shifted to Pakistan. Then, and it's interesting that many of them actually thought they would remain in Delhi. None of them thought they are going to leave Delhi before partition. Um, Right, but then they, their place was taken by the refugee Arya Samaji uh, newspapers and the Sikh papers and all of them. But all of them were Urdu papers. So on the one hand, you see this major demographic shift, but on the other hand, it is very much in continuity with the world of the late colonial period, where Urdu was the main medium of communication, of writing, of press, and of the politics. So in this sense, we can really see the 1950s as a twilight, as the, as, as the transition, as the liminal uh, period of transitioning from uh, the late colonial to the post-colonial. So I studied extensively uh, the censorship files of the post-independence period, and they all dealt mainly with the Urdu Press. So there I, I went to Tinmurti and I checked these uh, newspapers uh, in the macrofilm section also because I realized that Urdu was the main actor that traveled and uh, interested the censorship officers and the government and Nehru and Patel and all these people talked about the Urdu public sphere because it was such a polemic public sphere because Urdu has this very emotional register um, that is, lends itself to very sensational and we have to say highly communal uh, messages. So it, it became clear that Urdu was the key medium both for refugees and for Muslims to stake their claim to the city, to react on local events, to comment on the burning questions of the, of the day in the city, but also on the very principal questions of citizenship and uh, the crisis of secular, secularism. Uh, and what I found especially interesting, and this is what I uh, analyzed in details, were the editorial controversies or war of words between the Muslim editors and the uh, refugee uh, 
refugee editors and the former Delhi editors who were now based in Pakistan but followed these controversies very uh, um, closely, showing to us how interconnected India and Pakistan continued to be uh, in that period. Yeah, thanks, Rosam. Actually, I want to turn you know, to the 1950s now and, and really how you show so well that how the experience of partition serves uh, not only, uh, you know, is important to the fashioning of political identities in the public sphere, such as this, but also serves the post-colonial states kind of governance strategies. And for your story of the 50s, you kind of open with the framework that is offered by political theorist uh, Shridipta Kabiraj about how there's a tussle between the logic of democracy and the logic of bureaucracy uh, in this period. And in a way, you know, the story that you already sketch at the level of the neighborhood uh, kind of makes sure, uh, makes it such that the, you know, the uh, dichotomy between the logic of bureaucracy versus logic of democracy doesn't overlap with the logic of state versus society. And I think that's the kind of distinction that your the story of political conflicts at the local level that you trace muddies this distinction between state, society, bureaucracy. And I particularly saw that in your account of how, in fact, the political activities of socialists and communists came comes to be policed much more rigorously in this period than the RSS, despite uh, kind of an official ban on the organization because uh, the RSS was much more entrenched at the level of society through uh, local institutional channels of municipal and bureaucratic power. So can you speak a little bit more about the, the political conflicts of the 50s and how you th- see you know, your story of this overlaps between this muddying of distinction between state, society, bureaucracy uh, in understanding the logic of uh, democracy or post-colonial citizenship uh, in this period? Yeah, thanks for that. Actually, I, I haven't thought about it. I must say, uh, when I wrote that chapter, I very much thought in lines of uh, Kaviraj's uh, paradigm about logic of democracy versus uh, logic of uh, bureaucracy. And what I tried to uh, flesh out in this uh, chapter uh, was how uh, the question of civil rights was very central to public debates in this uh, period and to challenges of the state, both from the Hindu right and from the uh, communist left. Uh, so, um, and and I open this chapter also uh, with a scene uh, from Yashpal that talks at length about uh, this issue, but you see it comes up again and again in the sources that people accuse the post-colonial government that it's not full democracy, that it's not a real change, that the down that was promised uh, was not delivered because so uh, because the structure of the colonial state was um, set in place. No one really uh, dismantled it. And censorship, surveillance, opening the letters of political leaders and parties, of editors, of citizens continues. Uh, the CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, expands its activity after partition. Uh, and of course, uh, the most contentious uh, uh, issue was the detentions. Uh, that continue to take uh, place. So what I try to, to show in this, um, in, in this chapter is how on the one hand, because Delhi is a hub of national politics, uh, all political leaders are drawn to it. They open uh, uh, branches for the political uh, parties. Many of the nationally, the national all Indian uh, controversies are staged in Delhi. It is a stage for mass demonstrations, processions, labor strikes, so high democratization of political life. But then on the other hand, of course, um, you have the colonial structure set in place and you have the uh, crisis of lower, uh, law and order during partition, which only induces the continued uh, surveillance and detentions of uh, people. So this is the basic framework, but I think you are right um, that uh, when you look at the neighborhood level, uh, you're certainly right that uh, we cannot have th- this uh, collapse of the dichotomy between state and society carries into the analysis on the fifth chapter because 
as you point out, uh, we see a much more rigorous uh, detention of people on the left uh, than of the people on the right because uh, the Hindu right became so entrenched in the city, in the social fabric, uh, due to development prior to partition, but mainly also because of the arrival of the refugees, many of them became supporters of the, of course, Hindu Mahasabha, RSS, and then the uh, Jana Sangh. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think I need to think about your, uh, your, your analysis. It is uh, quite perceptive, and I haven't uh, thought it through uh, in this way. I will. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, thanks, Rodam. I was just working with the argument in the book and kind of framing it to you, but I'm I'm happy to hear if you found it productive. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, there's so much else I want to ask. I especially want to ask about, uh, wanted to ask about Mridula Sarabhai and the Shanti Dal, which uh, we don't have time now. So listeners will just have to read the book to get to that very fascinating account of uh, Sarabhai, very different Sarabhai in that story that you trace. But before we close, I did want to ask you about, you know, what you're working on nowadays and, you know, what we can hope to read from you in in the future. Thank you. Yes. So uh, I just finished an article um, that compares the partition of India with the partition of Palestine. As I mentioned uh, in the beginning of our conversations, I'm quite intrigued by the parallels and differences between the two cases. Uh, So I examined this whole question of structure versus contingency in the run-up to partition in the two cases, and I uh, compared them. Uh, with an eye to the differences between the two questions, between the two cases, uh, I highlight mainly uh, the aspect of settler colonialism that is more present in the Zionist case and is absent uh, from um, the the Indian case. So this is one article that is currently under review. Uh, the, sep- the second project actually takes off from where Delhi Reborn ended, and I look at Delhi during the 1960s and 1970s uh, after the emergency, and I pursue the methodology of looking at uh, intermediary, f- intermediary figures, local activists, local newspaper editors, uh, people who really were sort of mediators between the upper levels of politics and the subaltern populations. And uh, the institute I start with is the Urdu paper Milap, and especially a satirical column that was uh, published in Milap by a Punjabi Hindu refugee named Fikir Tonswi. I look at the events of Delhi through his eyes. And I'm now working on it. The main theme that uh, seems to be most prominent is the issue of corruption. So I guess this will be a project on corruption. Oh, fascinating. That I would love to read. Uh, in the, It overlaps a lot with my research interests. So thanks, Rojam, and I look forward to that whenever that comes out. But thank you so much for this conversation. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I enjoyed it.